Hey, welcome to Woman On. I'm Maxie McCoy, your host, and this season we are talking to the people and the women making 2020 actually somewhat inspiring. Believe it or not, it can be true. And remember, if you love what you're hearing on this episode right now, there's a worksheet that comes with this for free. Go to womanoncollective.com backslash worksheet. And if you want to go deeper, if you want to meet with me and us and small groups and women to talk about these issues, you can do that every Tuesday and Thursday. Just get your Woman on Collective season pass at womanoncollective.com. All right. My next guest is Jordan Marie Daniel. Jordan is an indigenous Lakota woman. She's a long distance runner, a Lululemon global ambassador, and the founder of Rising Hearts Coalition, an organization aimed at raising awareness of indigenous issues. This woman is hugely inspiring to me. I think she's going to be inspiring to you too. And just as the real true epitome of creating change from exactly where you stand. This season, as you know, spans not only Indigenous Peoples Day, but Thanksgiving too. And yet, so many Americans refuse to look at the effects of colonialism in this country happening right now. I remember waking up to these injustices pretty early for the 1998 Texas State History Fair. I worked on a report about the Trail of Tears and the forced relocation of 60,000 Native Americans between 1830 and 1850 by the United States government. As a kid, that was something that just felt like this wild, distant history. But as an adult, I've learned so, so much more about the current picture of colonization and its modern day effects. I want you, as an example, to consider these numbers. Four out of five Native women have experienced violence in their lifetime. Murder. Murder is the third leading cause of death for Native women, who are murdered at a rate that is 10 times higher than other ethnicities. 10 times higher. Factors contributing to these numbers and exposing Indigenous women to increased violence are our reliance on fossil fuels, pipeline routes cutting through Native-owned land, and the man camps of workers that pop up along with them. In preparing for this interview, I found myself overcome. I I don't know how you couldn't be with the heaviness reading the stories of the murdered and missing Indigenous women that Jordan holds prayer runs for and devotes some of her life's work towards. And through that heaviness, I was also inspired to learn more, to do more. And I I think that you're going to be inspired by what you hear in this episode too, to use whatever platform you have to work toward change to work toward a better future. And we'll do it better together by locking arms so that the issues, the missing voices, the challenges of all marginalized communities can rise up. Here's Jordan Marie Daniel. When you hit that starting line at the Boston Marathon and you have the iconic red um, handprint across your face and MMIW on your leg, Can you tell me what went into that decision, the experiences before that, that led you to choosing to do that when you, you know, when you walked up to that starting line? Yeah, it was a series of just a bunch of different events. Um, The last few years, I've become more dedicated and invested in the epidemic of missing and murdered Indigenous women. And 
participating in prayer vigils, organizing prayer vigils, um, supporting the organizations, the advocates and the families that have been impacted and, you know, organizing educational panels, um, especially once I started, once I began, um, you know, my new journey in LA, um, I, I started organizing those sort of panels to have these discussions, especially outside of Indigenous voices and circles, because I felt like all too often, these conversations are always being had within our own circles. And, and rightfully so, because these are our relatives. And this is, you know, really having a devastating impact in our communities. And it's been an injustice that has seen no justice and no resolution whatsoever for, I would say, since 1492, since contact. Um, and so what led to that moment of deciding to wear you know, the red handprint and the letters on my body was just time and time again, feeling like no one cared about Native people, Native women and our children and two spirits and our relatives and feeling like our lives are expendable, especially after having seen what happened in Standing Rock and with the, the pipeline being relocated from Bismarck to Standing Rock and going through treaty territory and treaties being, you know, the most supreme law of the land and every single treaty that has been ever created has been violated and never upheld. And so it, that, that sparked this notion of environmental racism exists, especially in marginalized communities and um, POC, people of of, of color communities. And um, it just seemed like it was an injustice happening too often um, with native people. And so having run the San Diego half marathon two years in a row in March of 2018 and 2019, um, I decided to take that opportunity to wear MMIW on my bib number. And I was hoping it would spark conversation, um, maybe help, you know, garner support, but um, it sparked a couple conversations, but it got mostly visibility within our own circles within the community. And, and while that was great, and while it was intentional, um, it wasn't having that impact of calling people in and coming to this issue and wanting to do whatever they can to support, you know, the advocates, the families. Um, and so in 2019, a month, about a month later was the Boston Marathon. And I had the incredible opportunity to go um, Wings of America. My friend, Dustin Martin, who was the executive director, invited me to help fundraise for the program and to just be a chaperone to the five Native youth that were there who are going on a college visit and running in the BAA 5K. So it was really exciting. And I just love Boston. It was so great to be back kind of in my home my home region where I yeah, mostly grew up. You grew up in Maine, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so lots of good memories of just racing and visiting and all of that stuff. So it was really great to be in that atmosphere again. Um, why, but, do you, why do you think Boston called in a different kind of attention that the choices that you had made, like in San Diego, didn't? What was the difference, do you think? Um, I really don't know. I mean, definitely... The two races are very different. It's Boston Marathon. So you have thousands and thousands of people and you have 
so many runners and just participants there for so many different reasons, so many different purposes as to what gives them, you know, that motivation to put one foot in front of the other. And I felt like that was lacking at the other one. It was a smaller half marathon event. It was popular, but you know, it was nothing compared to Boston. And I think Boston, especially just because of the community and what happened with the, the bombings in 2016, I think a lot of people there, when they found out why I was wearing red letters and a red handprint and um, having that understanding, you know, they became, they became a lot of voices that reached out to me um, and and recognizing like, Hey, I sat on the bus with you driving to the Hopkinton start line. I wish I had known about this. I wish I could have shaken your hand or I wish I could have cheered for you if I, if I had known about this. And so, you know, it was that the lack of support and visibility for this movement and for so many of our relatives that have been taken and still missing um, that led to me making the decision to, to want to throw away time and not care about how I performed. Cause granted I only had a month about a month to train for this. Cause he asked me like a month and a half before. And I was like, sure, well, <laughs> sure. I'll, I'll, I'll do it. I'll definitely uh, fundraise money for you guys and I'll just do the best I can. Yeah. Um, and my partners, you know, driving me to the start line and I had no idea really what I was going to do. I, I knew I wanted the red hamper and I asked for my parents to bring it to me. My mom came up to visit and cheer me on and, it just kind of felt like my hands knew what they were doing when Mm. I got the paint out, started just putting the letters on my body. And then he helped me with that, the red handprint. And it just became all about creating this opportunity for them and not for me and completely removing myself from kind of the selfishness of the sport of, I want to run fast. I want to place this time. I want to place in the top, whatever. Um, I I have to run this pace. Um, And I just, I threw all of that out the window and it was just all about being intentional and being purposeful with every, every stride. And I, I wanted to carry prayers. I wanted to offer prayers and say them out loud. And I had 26 names uh, mm-hmm. that I, I found. Um, one of them was my relative, Brittany Tiger. And I just, I, I wanted this space to be for them. I wanted them, if they were listening, if they could feel the energy, to know that someone among so many others are thinking about them, that they're not forgotten and offering prayers to them and offering prayers to their families and to our communities and praying for justice and for healing. And then, you know, it's about a half a mile left maybe Mm -hmm. of that mile. And I'm like, I'm going to try and enjoy this, this, this route and the cheering to keep me going. Um, But it was honestly the easiest, best race of my Mm -hmm. life. And you know, even after that into the next races, because I dedicated every single race after that for all of 2019, um, it just got progressively harder. And um, I think I went into it a little naive and not thinking it would impact me mental health wise. Yeah. That's what I wanted to know is when you, when you say that it got harder as you took that same um, ritual and practice into other races, how did it impact you? Uh, It So I I ran another race about a month and a half after it was my first trail race. And, um, that went really well. And I, I was still kind of recovering from one, the whirlwind of media attention that they got and our prayer run got. And, um, 
it was the third race, the Mammoth Half Marathon in June. That's where I started feeling like my body was just going to exhaustion. And um, I'm not used to going into a race already emotionally and physically depleted. Um, just having done the research and finding the names, I didn't, I, I want to make sure that I'm recognizing the, the relatives, you know, who have gotten a lot of attention and yeah. some action, uh, like Savannah LaFontaine Greywind, um, and Hannah Harris and, um, Ashley Loring, heavy runner, but I wanted to find the relatives, you know, who were taken decades ago and their cases are, are a cold case still and unsolved. I wanted to find the relatives who, you know, just haven't received that support and, and have received that attention. So it was a lot of researching and a lot of finding groups and um, just following hashtags mm-hmm. to find more relatives and doing a call to action of, hey, if you have a relative that you've lost, like if you would like me to run for them, please let me know, reach out. And I got responses from that. Um, and so it was sitting with that heavy, heavy emotion. Um, and having read sometimes what happened to them physically was really hard to sit with. And so I wasn't setting up the boundaries that I, I should have been, but I didn't know. I've never done this before. Connecting what you just shared in terms of holding holding that burden of their stories, the research, their lived experiences and all of that pain. And then also the media frenzy that you just mentioned, you know, coming out of, out of Boston Marathon. What was it like having to hold both of those at once? Did the media frenzy feel like a burden? Was it something that you were excited about, but also, you know, it kind of thrust you in a spotlight of, of having to carry the torch of those stories? What was that like? It was really overwhelming. It was, yeah. it felt like at first it was okay. Um, the first few requests, but then it just started getting really exhausting because I'm repeating myself a lot of the time. And yeah. as it was mentioned with my friend, Claire, who wrote the article about me in trail runner, she just said one of her things was, you know, one of our last few interviews, her voice kind of got monotone and it made me reflect mm-hmm. on how many times has she had to speak about this. Mm-hmm. And, um, it's not that I'm getting monotone. It's just, I, I go into autopilot because yeah, totally. one, I'm so passionate and I know what I need to say. And I know, you know, I, I can speak from the heart to this. Um, but it is, it does get exhausting to have mm-hmm. to, to relive this, especially when I'm having to relive kind of the, the, the pain that I was going through. And after mm-hmm. that race, you know, it, I broke down it, it became insomnia. It became nightmares. It became anxiety attacks and panic attacks and, um, the constant need to keep running. Cause I felt like I, if I wasn't running, I wasn't helping to give visibility. So I, I ended up running myself into injuries that I've never had in my entire running career, 22 years. And, um, and I'm still recovering from that. And I'm still recovering from this, you know, this really big mental health setback, um, because, you know, it took me a long time until of this year in January to seek out help from a therapist and to take two months straight off from, from running completely, which I've never done in my life. I always have a hard time even taking one day off Mm -hmm. a month. Um, and Mm -hmm. so the fact that I did that and didn't miss running at all, I only wanted to get back to running when, 
I, I had that idea of like, I miss running. Um, and it took two months until I I felt that two months. Yeah. It was catching up on sleep. It was setting boundaries and still trying to like hold myself accountable to those boundaries. But at the same time, I'm a community organizer. I'm an advocate and, uh, my platform is is bigger than just MMIW. I, I do a lot of work in advocacy and environmental justice, yeah. racial and social. And so the the opportunities <laughs> of speaking and um, partnering and building campaigns is just, you know, very, very there's big. A lot. Yeah, a lot. There, there's a lot there. And so, you know, I'm still figuring it out. I'm still learning what works and what doesn't work. I'm kind of happy that we're in this pandemic moment because it allows me to heal from these injuries and really kind of focus on myself and literally start from zero of running and slowly adding on mileage and just taking care of myself. And I've done some prayer runs this year already. Um, And so I'm kind of playing with the connection I've made the most is when I wear the handprint. The handprint really is just this heavy symbol that represents all of the voices that have been silenced by violence. And I think yeah. that is part of the reason why it gets so hard mentally and emotionally and spiritually. And so some prayer runs that I've done, I, I chose not to wear the handprint and I, I still wore the letters um, or I didn't at all. And I, I noticed that I recovered better mentally and spiritually mm-hmm. But on the 360-mile prayer run that I recently did in Utah with um, 11 other Native runners carrying prayers, um, there were two days that I wore the handprint out of the five. Mm. And those two were the heaviest days. And um, I hadn't worn the handprint at all yet this entire year until that moment. Um, And the first day that I did it, um, I, I, I was maybe two miles into it. And my partner was visiting uh, or like checking on me in one of the the spots. And I just ran to him and I stopped running and I just was like panic breathing. And I was, you know, running by everyone that was cheering me on. And I I was having this panic breathing again and just feeling the heaviness and like carrying those prayers in my medicine in my medicine bag with the tobacco. I had the, the paper with their names on them and just like clinging on to the sage and the medicines that I had in my hand and just trying to still offer those prayers. But at the same time, I could just feel all of this emotion just coming up in my chest. And like, I sensed I was holding myself back from crying. Yeah. Um, and then finally, when I saw my partner who, you know, I, I feel comfortable to be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And so I literally stopped and just hugged him and he's like, are you okay? And I just started crying and I had to like catch my breath again and compose myself and just think about them and just started running again to finish my leg. And so I'm, I'm starting to see like, where, where can I have the, the most intentional impact and, and the most prayerful moments, um, that can have the red handprint versus, you know, if I want to be running in prayer all the time, I don't need to wear the handprint yeah. because yeah. you know those prayers are still being sent, whether I do have the handprint or not. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was, I'm, I'm, I'm figuring out the boundaries still. <laughs> well, and you know, it, it is such a, it's such a, a, a beautiful, um, and thank you for sharing that, you know, what it is like to, to be doing something so intentional and, and, 
your work is is devoted to so many things as you just mentioned that are that are so much bigger than you and you are you know putting um indigenous visibility above you know what at times was probably your own mental health and so being able to recalibrate that and come back i think in all the work that any individual does it's it's having to figure that out and figuring out what what ground zero is as yeah. you took that time off of running and as you're continuing to rebuild in this insane year, those boundaries that you just mentioned, what, you know, the, the red handprint is clearly one of them. What have others looked like for you in terms of things that you didn't realize were holding you back from your ability to serve your highest good? Yeah, I think it's just about removing myself from some spaces especially like online, you know, I had joined, you know, groups that focused all about MMIW and I just removed myself from seeing the notification. So if I actively want to see like, what's the latest update, you know, Savannah's act just got passed and the not invisible act just got, got passed. And, um, I'll actively seek those out if I need this information and content to stay updated or to, um, be part of the content that I'm creating online for people to educate themselves on. Um, but it's removing those notifications and seeing new notification, a missing person. Um, you know, it's, it's removing those not that I don't want to like ever see them. I still end up seeing them eventually, but it's kind of being inundated with all of these notifications and comments being tagged. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, social media it came down to like, okay, I need to remove, um, you know, people who I don't know aren't allowed to comment on like any of my posts and yep. um, like just creating even just small little boundaries like that. While it makes me feel really sad because my platforms aren't just about me and, and yeah you know, my life, it's about having these discussions and being very transparent and honest with my lived experiences. So maybe it resonates with someone else and letting them know that they're not alone, um, creating dialogue and talking about these issues that, you know, no one wants to talk about, um, or confront. And so I, I want my platform to always be interactive and I want to be approachable and reachable, but at the same time, it's like, I can't so reply much. back to everybody. I, I, I'm not trying to be mean or rude. I don't want people thinking that, but it's at the same time, it's just like, I can't respond. Um, I can't, you know, answer every single message that's in the request or something like that. It's just, I, there are not enough hours in the day. There um, and, and so energy just gets so divided when you do exactly. that. You know, we had a conversation this season with Bethany Myers and they were saying, you know, it was, it was a moment when they realized that they didn't have to respond to every single DM in Instagram. And it's, you know, it, it's a, it is every strength casts its shadow. It's like on one hand, we have these platforms that allow you to bring conversations and narratives and topics that have been ignored for hundreds of years. Yeah. And at the same time, you know, those, those are also impacting your day to day and how you're able to show up in your own life. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So those, you know, those small moments, I, um, I don't think we realize how big of an impact those, you know, those moments have. And, you know, one, one thing I was thinking about as you are talking about, you know, the spaces that you're choosing to either be in or not be in, 
And, you know, kind of what you said at the beginning of this conversation too, about welcoming people who are not traditionally in the conversations around, you know, the violence against indigenous women and the, you know, racial and climate change um, connections, you know, in these communities also is, you know, as you step out of your own community and the, and the people who know these narratives, and then you step into communities who don't know them. Do you feel the burden of having to constantly educate? Mm-hmm. Um, because that's actually something that we have, I have personally been thinking about just in the questions that you ask. It's not, the the burden is not to be on you to come educate us and give us your keynote every time you have a conversation with us. But, you know, what, how do you choose that balance of where you do show up to educate, but also not feeling like you're having to take that burden on? Yeah, it's, uh, I was just having a conversation about this last Friday. Um, anytime these issues get brought up, it's always, you know, I'm finding myself getting tagged in these here, you need, you should be talking to this person or, Hey, Jordan, can you chime in on this conversation to inform this person about this? And, um, it's either from that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's either from that, or it can be into the conversations of what diversity, equity, and inclusion looks like. And I am part of so many of those conversations. And while I, I want to be at the same time, I have yet to ever be in a meeting where I'm not coming from a standpoint of like having to feel like I'm on offense or I guess defense. Yeah. Um, always having to be like the roles. Yeah. Yeah. And like always having to be a voice and always having to speak up. I would love for a diversity, equity, and inclusion training to happen where I don't need to say anything. I can just listen and take it all in and just enjoy it and learn and be supportive. But at the end of the day, it's like, it's a lot of it is so taxing. It's emotionally taxing. Um, and this is a conversation that I've had with so many other of my, my friends coming from the BIPOC to spirit LGBTQ communities. And so this is something we're used to. Um, this is something that, you know, I, I really recommend. I never listen to my own self and my advice, but I always recommend (laughs) like, we, we need to be paid and compensated for our time and emotional energy, um, especially for a lot of the content that is created on social media that we're doing on our own time um, because we're trying and fighting so hard for social change. So hard. And no yeah. one is asking us. No one is reaching out to us. Sometimes they do, but then they, they kind of take our concept or our information lived experiences and they interpret it and put it into their own trainings without ever giving us credit or without ever paying us for our time. Um, and so they're, they're being very extractive with our, our own emotions and lived experiences and trauma and healing that we are constantly trying to interweave and do all at the same time. Uh, so it's really, it's exhausting. And while I love having these conversations at the same time, I just wish, um, I feel like we're at a point where like, we should be getting this by now, by like, now, I, I, yeah. I created a blog several years ago for these discussions oh, and, the fact and they I'm are still doing, they it. are so good. If you're anything like me, you love listening to inspiring stories, but then there always is this little letdown at the end of a show because it's sort of like, well, now what, how do I put anything into action that I've just heard? Well, at Woman On, we're here to solve that. 
Each episode comes with a free worksheet that you can download to get dirty with all the wisdom and put it in your own life. Just go to womanoncollective.com backslash worksheet. And one of the things that really stood out to me is the work that you are doing at Rising Hearts. And I know that you are, I just want to acknowledge, you are doing so much work on so many dimensions that um, I don't want to narrow it to, to just this or just that, but that the work and the education and the personal stories and the lived experiences that you you are putting out. And then with Rising Hearts and the community organizing that you're doing, one of the things I was curious um, from you, because I think that there's there's so much to take from this is, you know, you were doing that and it was largely, you know, in-person organizing. You're with people. You are bringing people together um, around pushing these wildly important issues forward. And then this year, we wake up and, you know, we, we can't do so much of the way that we did things. What has this year been like for you in, in figuring out how to adjust and, and not repurpose your work, but re, maybe repurpose the mediums of your work? I mean, virtual, I love it. Do you? <laughs> I, yeah. I, think, like, I don't have to go anywhere. I know, exactly. <laughs> Especially in a pandemic. I don't have to worry about getting sick, but yeah. um, I think virtual has the potential for a greater reach. Um, a lot of in-person stuff, you can't have people like if I'm organizing something here in LA, can't have people from the East coast be part of it. Um, so I think virtual has a really unique opportunity for having a bigger reach and and a bigger impact and making it accessible. Well, I mean, you can't assume everyone has, you know, high speed internet or, you know, these applications, but, um, it seems like a lot of people do. And um, yeah, it just, it makes it for me, it's, it makes it more comfortable. It makes it more fun. It makes it more safe because I also know a lot of people coming into these conversations and issues. A lot of people, um, you know, don't feel safe enough to speak to their own experience, you know, in person, but, you know, being able to speak to their own experience, maybe virtually, while they're in the safety of their own home, they have, you know, whatever they need to do that to ground them. them. Yeah. That centers yeah. them. Um, you know, I feel like allows for that opportunity. And so I think it's just having a very amazing ripple effect of social mm-hmm. impact, having things be virtual. Jordan, that's such a, such a beautiful um, insight that I haven't necessarily thought about before is the way, you know, cause I think a lot of times we think of digital spaces, especially when we think of social media as pretty unsafe, um, mm-hmm. and especially unsafe for marginalized communities. And as you are creating safe spaces online and, and what you just shared, is there anything that you are doing to cultivate, um, that closeness and that intimacy with the community that you're organizing as, as you, Jordan? I mean, so Rising Hearts really began with just bringing visibility and representation for Indigenous voices and, and bodies in, in these spaces and on these platforms. And it was born out of the No, the no Dabble Standing Rock movement because mm-hmm. I saw the lack of representation on those platforms at rallies and marches. And it started with me showing up with my sign and having this idea and my friends supporting me and being my volunteer organizers. And um, Rising Hearts really has just been so rooted in just grassroots, being all about the people, creating these opportunities to be accessible um, and to always have room for expansion and for growth. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm constantly learning how, what can I be doing to make this better, more inclusive, more safe. Um, and 
as I've been learning, I have seen the true value of what intersectionality is and means and serving as a member on the Intersectional Environmentalist Council Mm. um, and having just this better understanding of needing to be there for everybody, needing to be there as a supporter and an ally and a relative to each other and to our movements and recognizing that, you know, I played a part in it of just kind of being siloed within my own community. Um, Not that I, I didn't care or, you know, not that I didn't like reshare or do anything for other communities that have been impacted by white supremacy and racism and systemic oppression. But um, it hasn't been until, you know, the last year where, it's, we need to expand out of our own silos and we need to come together as communities and fight for transformational change together to build an intersectional movement. And, um, it's rising hearts is now really focused on being intersectional as, you know, still doing the work and to support, you know, indigenous communities, native country, but also showing up and creating content and doing just a lot more, you know, actions to support all of our communities. And um, even in the language of what Rising Hearts is and represents, including those other communities and voices as well. And so now um, Rising Hearts, you know, is just all about being intersectional and intentional. And um, it's it's something that I, I truly believe in and something that we've been lacking for years. Mm-hmm. And so even with my prayer runs, the I've been dedicating prayer runs for, for black brothers and sisters who have been murdered and and making sure that the world sees that this injustice, um, you know, is happening in our communities and the trauma that we are experiencing for hundreds of years, um, is all rooted in the very same causes. We're just experiencing, experiencing them a little bit differently, but, you know, it's, it's, creating these opportunities with rising hearts to bring and call people in, not just communities of color, not just, you know, our two-spirit LGBTQ community. It's bringing in allies to see and hear us and to understand us, to support us, to vote with us in their mind. (laughs) Um, And having these virtual, you know, races that I've organized. I'm organizing my fourth one now in the last like five months. Um, it's, it's about creating these platforms to have everyone be there together to support. And especially to let people know that, you know, Indian country wants you to understand and to be friends and to support us. And a lot of people have asked like, Oh, is it okay if I sign up for your indigenous people's day virtual? And it's like, yes, like sign up. It's not just for indigenous people. This is for everybody. Um, So this is about creating content and being able to control the narrative from our perspective, rather than it being created and dictated for us. Mm -hmm. Um, And just creating these opportunities for everyone to be part of. And um that's why I, I like creating these virtual events, creating these these virtual run wellness events. Right now, I'm organizing the Indigenous Wellness Through Movement um, and having people participate in any of the 15 sessions that we have for Native American Heritage Month, which is all of November. Yeah. Um, and you're doing anything from learning Pilates to yoga to salsa and bachata to um, daily hip strength and core and yes, exercises, <laughs> everything. It's about expanding this knowledge and this dialogue um, and creating a better understanding of who we are, 
why we do what we do, why we are resilient, why we are so strong, um, even despite the adversity that we still continue to go through um, and just having people learn from us and, and learning what decolonizing wellness looks like, um, especially the issue or a topic of wellness being heavily over-commercialized yeah. um, in the last couple of years. And so we want, to, I want to help build a platform with indigenous wellness through movement and having it be monthly and um, just offering these sessions for everyone to participate in. What is it about running and or movement in general that allows it to be this great invitation to other perspectives and, and histories and um, work that is, you know, not in the mainstream media? I think it just is its own expression of... <laughs> I guess, advocacy when, when you do make that connection. And I would say I only made that connection last year (laughs) at the Boston marathon. Um, I've seen, you know, politics, um, in sport a few times. Um, but you know, for me, it was all about running, connecting me to my family. It was about being a native athlete, representing native athletes, and hopefully our our next generations of athletes. It was about connecting with the land and my surroundings to Unchimaka. And um, it was just my, my therapy of disconnecting from school or work or the stresses and just going out for that run and just doing it for myself. Um, But as the years have gone on. And I would say probably in 2016 is when I kind of made that connection of, oh, well, you can definitely run and have, have a message that you want people to hear. And so that was organizing the run, the run for water rally to welcome the standing rock youth who ran over 2000 miles from cannonball to Washington, DC to oppose the Dakota access pipeline. And they, they, what they did really kind of put me on this path of, you can, advocate for something that you truly believe in on any platform and in any space. And so I participated in prayer runs. I participated in these other kinds of actions, but I had never um, brought it in to the competitive aspect of it. I always kept it separate and kind of compartmentalized the two um, because I I, I felt like maybe that would take away maybe my love of running. Um, But like I said, until 2019, it just got to a certain point where it's just like enough is enough. I can't, I can't keep resharing or donating or retweeting or, you know, creating this content that I feel like only native folks are only seeing because we're the only ones that care about this issue. And so that's where the intersection of sport and advocacy for me really clicked. And after that and seeing the ripple effect and even the the inspiration that it gave to our younger generations, like Rosalie Fish, who, you know, is like my little sister and she's in her second year of college now. She just can texted me tell, today. Yeah. Can um, you, I wanted to ask you about her because, you know, it's as you're, as you're speaking, you know, it's so clear that activism and in 2019 really transformed your running, which the reason I, I love you saying that it wasn't always like that as, you know, growing up a runner, you know, it wasn't always a platform for activism. And then it, it became one is it gives so much inspiration to people who have, whether it's a running platform, a writing platform, uh, everyone has their own unique place that they're coming from and we can layer the good work onto mm-hmm. that. Um, but, and I wanted to ask you about Rosalie Fish. Um, can you explain to everyone how she got brought into your world and why and what that relationship um, has looked like? 
Yeah. She reached out to me a couple of weeks after I'd finished the marathon. Um, and it was in one of the requests. So I just one day happened to be checking and, um, she had messaged me asking like, Hey, I, I saw what you did. I think it's incredible. It's really inspiring. Um, and from seeing in other interviews of how she speaks about me, she just says, um, you know, it's really nice. It's really inspiring to see native women, um, in sport, in running, uh, you know, take this opportunity to bring attention to something that, you know, all of our families have been impacted either directly or indirectly. Um, and so she would reach out to me telling me that and asked if she could have my blessing to do the same thing at her state meet, which was a few weeks later. Um, she was a senior in high school and I responded immediately. I was like, yeah, go for it. Like this is, why? Because at this time, I'm starting to see all of the impact and the media attention that they're getting, the names they're getting, that their stories are, are, are being brought back into the spotlight again. Um, and I always try to remove myself from saying this is my platform. This mm-hmm. is not about me. This is I'm just a messenger. I am a prayer carrier. I am just using my own body as a way to. Yeah, to to deliver these messages into the names and to speak their names out loud and to put them in print and um, do whatever I can. And so I told her, yes, go for it. Do it. This is exactly like what we need. And she did it. And she elevated running and activism um, to even at a higher platform um, than, than what I was doing. Yeah. And I was just like, this is just an amazing ripple effect that I had no idea was going to happen. And mm-hmm. even after finishing that run, I, I honestly thought no one's going to care. Like I'm going to make this post. I'm going to share with all of my relatives and the communities that I work with of this is who I ran for. And this is mm-hmm. why I ran for them. And this is for you guys. This is, you know, continuing this indigenous presence and representation as a voice and an advocate. And I had honestly no idea that I'd be on the path that I am now. And it's a, um, it's a, an amazing one. And I wonder too, you know, with, with an example like Rosalie and that, that ripple effect, and you've obviously created, you call her, you know, like your little sister and this really strong relationship. What was it like to have somebody in it with you? I imagine, and I don't want to project that it was heavy for her also in the way that it was heavy for you, but um, did it, did it matter that you had someone kind of arm in arm in the same in the same journey with you. Definitely. Um, that's something that we both speak to of, we understand it. Uh, we know how hard it gets even after she had finished. I think it was her second race. She, she had won, but she was really conflicted at like how disappointed she felt. But at the Mm -hmm. same time, she didn't know why she was feeling this. And I was like, it's because of the prayers you're carrying. It's because of how heavy this issue is. And um, you're literally carrying the weight of this epidemic when you're running with you. And, you know, you're, you're going to have to just feel it. You're going to have to run through it. You're going to have to keep pushing forward. And we both understand where each other is coming from. We are the only ones that can really understand it. We text each other every once in a while when one of us has a run or one of us is struggling, or we keep hearing or seeing more missing flyers. And it's just like, what can we be doing? Like what feels like not even this is enough. And like, what else, what action do we need to, to be taking? When you guys are talking, how do you answer that question for yourself? Because I think 
you know, anyone, no matter what area of work that they're doing and in, in trying to push progress forward for a certain community, for a certain issue, it doesn't ever feel like it's enough. And, and that is a very relatable sentiment. And I'm curious how the, how you answer it, how the two of you answered it. I feel like we don't really ever answer it. It's always <laughs> of kind of reassuring us that we're doing literally the best we can and we're sharing the resources that should be shared and out there for people to know about to support because it's really these organizations the advocates like Sovereign Bodies Institute, National Indigenous Women's Resource Center, the Urban Indian Health Institute and like hundreds more of coalitions and groups that are all focused on ending gender-based violence, on protecting Native women, on protecting women and children, on protecting our elders and domestic violence, sexual assault, human sex trafficking initiatives, and providing safe homes. So there are so many amazing voices and advocates and relatives out there doing this work. And I think when we do speak to this to each other, we're kind of just reassuring ourselves like, you are doing the best you can and kind of just giving that extra validation of like, we also can't take on too much. Yeah. We're, we're always being spread thin, especially since she's in college. And, and, you know, part of me wishes that I hope you are having a good college experience without needing to take on the weight of the world right now with all of the injustice and civil unrest and, and equities that are happening and very visibly present. I want you to be a kid mm-hmm. and enjoy yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I'm also really inspired by how she's able to manage it and yeah. the, the, the coursework she's doing and the training she's going through to be certified as a, I think she's training to be getting her hours to be kind of like a, a domestic violence advocate. Yeah. Um, and so doing that as well as training, you know, she just, just doing amazing work. And like I said, if I helped create that ripple effect, she created it too. And it inspired other native athletes to do the same basketball players, football players, volleyball players, you name it. It's, it's literally seeing it it everywhere. And so it's just an impact that I never thought was going to happen, but I'm so, so grateful that it has. Yeah, it has. And you have been a huge part of that. And we are so grateful for it and and inspired by you. And as we wrap up here, I do want to know, you know, who is the woman or person on the rise that the woman on community should be keeping an eye out on? Ooh, that's a lot. <laughs> I could name at least a dozen right now. I love it. I know this is always the hardest question in every interview uh, because we have 9 million women we want to tell people about. Yes, exactly. I mean, I would just say even start with just Rosalie Fish and my my best friend, Callie Wolf, uh, Corinne Rice. You know, we have these amazing women and matriarchs in our communities and even just on the intersectional environmentalist council, you have like, you know, Leah Thomas, green girl, Leah on there. And you have Andrea Perez, you have Pinar from queer Quechua. And you just have these amazing voices out there that are just creating such an impact in our communities and having these ripple effects of change that I would love to see them interweave and connect um, rather than, like I said, staying mm-hmm. siloed um, and, and with only in the communities. And sometimes it's not their doing and doing that. It's just sometimes 
people just don't know about the other kinds of topics and issues that are out there. And that's what I truly believe intersectionality can do is help increase awareness um, and to help really inform everybody of what's happening and how is it all interconnected. It's all interconnected. A woman to that, the more that, you know, all of these issues and, and amazing voices like yours are brought together, the more that we can push the, the macro change forward. Um, last question, Jordan, what are you batshit grateful for today? Oh, I would just say for my family, for us being here and being able to support each other, even if I'm on the West Coast and they're on the East Coast and in the Midwest, um, I think it's just about having family right now, um, especially more than ever, to help keep me centered and be those amazing reminders that I always need every single day when I feel like I'm just stressed out to the max and feeling like I'm not making an impact at all. Um, because all of the work that we're doing in our communities and on these platforms, you know, it's, it's, chiseling away um, at this much bigger issue. And it's just going to take time. And sometimes I always think about time as the thing holding us back, but I just have to be patient and it's going to take time. And we are going to see the change that we're all fighting for. We will, because we have people like you, Jordan. Thank you. I appreciate you. Thank you so much. Woman on with Maxie McCoy is a woman on production. Maxie McCoy is your host. Your executive producers and creators are Maxie McCoy and Lisa Raphael. Charissa Wright is our technical producer, video editor, and audio producer. Social media from Woman On is brought to you by Betty Jean Bowles. Love what you're hearing? Well, you get to really dive in by joining the 10-week collective where you'll be put into small groups that meet every week for the entire season led by one of our brilliant Woman On leaders. They're so brilliant, you're going to love them. We break down the episode themes together every week. We discuss, we learn from each other. It's seriously so fun. And there's some super cozy merch that's exclusive to the collective. That's the Woman On world. We hope, we really hope that you'll join us.